to metaphors. Look how he starts off, Yahweh. I like using the name there because David is using the personal name for God. Yahweh is. Now think of all the things that David could describe God as. All the things he does describe God as. There are the high and lofty titles. Yahweh is my king, my sovereign, my judge, my ruler. There are the impressive but impersonal titles. Yahweh is my my rock, my stronghold, my shield. But instead, in this moment of intimacy, he rejects those and he chooses one that he has such familiarity with. He says, Yahweh is my shepherd, my shepherd. That's the first metaphor of God's care for us, is that of a shepherd. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me a path of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now we'll talk about each one and, and kind of what these phrases imply here in just a second. But I want you to see the progression of this, how he speaks of, of God's care for him through this. And then in verse 5, he changes the metaphor. And at first, I put the word host here to describe this metaphor, because in a way, that's the metaphor is at a, a host at a banquet table. But then I think there's a better word here. God is not only our shepherd, he is our friend. Because he's not picturing so much as a, as a host like of a, of a great and impersonal banquet. He's picturing God as someone like a friend of his with whom he can come into his house and receive his provision. And that's why he says, you prepare a table before me in the very presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. To anoint someone's head with oil was simply the gesture of a kind friend who is receiving another friend, a traveler, into his house. So today, if... uh, if someone were coming over to my house today and, and I had a special regard for them, I might bring them um, something. Like I might ask them to sit in the best chair. I might bring them the best thing we had to drink in the house. Back then, to show special honor to someone, you would take a small flask of oil and you would anoint their head with it. The Hebrews and the Greeks a little bit after them would use oil somewhat like we would use facial oil today, somewhat for cleansing, somewhat for cosmetic appearances. Occasionally they would even use it medicinally, but I don't think that's the use here. It speaks of just a gracious provision on the part of a friend. And it says, my cup. It's referring to the cup that a host or a friend would set before someone else. He says, my cup overflows. What he means by that, I mean, we, we hear that phrase so often, What it means is this, God gives us more than we can actually handle. And it says, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So you see the metaphor here, it's dwelling in Yahweh's house. He's not just coming for a visit. He is staying He's implying, I think he's even looking past the grave because it says, I will stay there forever in Yahweh's house. Because of that love and mercy, you're always going to be with me. In fact, the word is even stronger than that. 
the word where it says they will follow me. It doesn't mean they'll bring up the rear. It means pursue me. They will be right there with me, your love and your mercy. Why? Because I am in your house under your care. Now, notice in both of these, the focus is on God's initiative and care. In both of these metaphors, there's a common element. That is what God is doing, what God is graciously doing, what God takes the initiative in doing, in caring for me. We have a father. Some of us have lost our earthly fathers. Many, some of us might not have had an earthly father that we looked upon the way that we would have liked to be able to look upon that father. But we have someone who has such intimate care and concern and desire and love for us. He is our shepherd and he's our host. Now, here's the second part then. And we're going to back up a little bit here as we talk about this, but the, the question then that comes to our mind then, I mean, this is a very simple little psalm, only six verses, two metaphors, very picturesque. How do we respond to that though? Do we simply just say, well, that's nice poetry and end it there? Well, that's what most people do with this psalm. But there is a, a response whenever God tells us something about himself, right? Whenever God shows us something about himself, there is a response on our part that should come out of that. How should we respond to that? Well, first, I think there's three things. First, wait for his provision. Wait for his provision. Say, so, well, where do you see that? Well, I see it right there in the first two verses. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. You know what Scripture tells us? Scripture tells us that we have everything we need for life and godliness in this world. We will not have our legitimate needs unmet. He says, I shall not be in want. Why? Because he makes me lie down in green pastures. You know, I was reading a book by a guy who was a shepherd and he wrote, he notes this. He says, sheep will not lay down unless they're sure that they are watched over and that they are free from predators and also that their needs have been met. If, they're out, if they have to go out foraging for food, if they have to worry about predators, they don't lie down. This is speaking of God's care for him. And then he says, he leads me beside quiet waters. The Hebrew phrase literally means waters of quietness. I don't think it refers so much to the, to the waters being quiet, because usually the best waters were a, an active stream. It's waters that bring quietness or rest to our soul. Now, you know what he's contrasting here? He is contrasting the way that a shepherd would have to take care of his sheep to make sure where they ate and where they drank. He'd have to make sure he brought them to the green fields. Because otherwise, a, a sheep would eat whatever was there, and some of the some of the uh, weeds and other thing would be annoying to their digestive system or even poisonous. Even worse than that, though, a shepherd had to make sure that the sheep only ate where the shepherd or only drank where the shepherd decided. You see, a, a thirsty sheep, if you're not careful, will drink anywhere. And when you've got a drove of sheep going through and you, there'll be a puddle there that all the sheep have gone through and pretty soon it's contaminated not only by the mud, but the, but the droppings of the animals that have gone before it. And so a, a sheep will, will go out and, and 
if it's thirsty enough and not under the shepherd's care, not trusting the shepherd, will drink from water that will actually injure his own soul or injure his body. We do that too, don't we? God has given us certain ways to meet our legitimate needs, and yet we feel a hunger or a thirst for something else. And so we, we drink from the polluted puddles of this world, and our souls are injured and sick. Instead, we need to wait for that provision. Young people in here, God wants to meet your needs in every way. He wants to meet your sexual needs. You can choose to drink from the polluted puddles of this world like a lot of other people are doing. Or you can wait for his provision. Those of us who are older, we could choose to go out and try and get things that enhance our security and our significance. We could try to make shortcuts. We could try to, to get things on our own effort and our own works. And God is saying, no, wait a second. If it is a legitimate need, I will meet it. You don't have to try to shortcut my directions. Anytime we close our ears to the shepherd, when we are not listening to the voice of the Spirit to meet our needs, we're not waiting for his provision. Secondly, we need to trust his leading. We need to trust his leading. He says in verse 3, He guides me in the paths of righteousness, for his name's sake. Now again, think of the metaphor that he's using here. A Middle Eastern shepherd did not drive his sheep, he led them. That means he didn't stand in the back and yell out orders and send the dogs around. He would go out in front of the sheep to lead them on the right paths. And so from a sheep's perspective, paths of righteousness just mean the right paths, the paths that they should go to get where they need to be. But of course, David means more than this, doesn't he? Paths of righteousness means those paths of life which God has ordained for us to walk on. That is what righteousness means. It doesn't mean some God has some list and standard out there and we better follow this, we're going to get nailed. No, the picture is, is not of a, of a judge primarily looking out to get us. It is of a shepherd wanting to guide us in the right way. Now, this is brought in even more in the next verse, where he says in verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear, fear no evil, for you are with me. Sometimes in the Middle East, especially in Israel, a shepherd had to lead his sheep where they did not want to go. Why? Well, during the early springtime, when everything was fairly lush all around there, and there were the spring rains, there are lots of green fields around. There are lots of places for the sheep to pasture. But as the year increased and the sun got hotter, those places would be scorched. Those places would be dry and barren. And so the shepherd would have to do something. He would have to lead his flock up into the mountains. Because there, at the higher elevation and in the shade of, of the mountains, that is where they would find water, that was where they would find the green foliage. But sheep don't like to go into the mountains because you have to pass through ravines and you have to pass through valleys. And that's the last place a sheep wants to go. Why? Well, two reasons. Number one, it's not very comfortable. The footing is unsure. Second reason, even more profound, is this. It's a place of danger. 
because in the unless it's broad right at noon, there are going to be shadows on each side. And in the darkness of those shadows, predators could lurk and did lurk. And so they had to trust their shepherd in a dangerous place, a place they did not want to go. They had to trust a shepherd that was only by going through those dangerous places that their needs could be met. Now, they didn't have to. They could go off on their own. They could run away from the shepherd. They could seek, seek to uh, do something the shepherd did not want them to do. Now, the shepherd had two tools with him in that valley. The one was a staff. The staff was normally what we think with the shepherd, you know, so a long stick with usually a crook at the end. It was used for one purpose, to bring the sheep back. It was used to, it was, the crook was used to get around the neck and bring them back closer to the shepherd. God sometimes has to protect us from ourselves, doesn't he? The rod was a, was a club, basically, a cudgel. And usually he would carry this in his belt because he didn't need this quite as often. But it was there. It was used for defense. It was used to protect the sheep against predators, and he could either use it as a club or he could hurl it, it depended on the animal he was attacking. And David, as a young shepherd, defeated both a lion and a bear who were after, after the flock. I imagine wolves were something even more common. And so he says, I'm not going to, when I go through this valley, I'm going to trust your leading. I will not fear, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and that's what that phrase means. It doesn't mean death itself. It means the very trying times of life when it looks like there's death around us or it looks like there's danger around us. When it looks like our, our security and our happiness is in jeopardy. It says, during those times, I am going to trust you. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let me ask you something. Where do we need to trust God? Do we know him enough to trust him? There was a television program about the 1988 Olympics not too long ago. It featured, this television program featured blind skiers being trained for the slalom. Say so it's impossible. How would they do that? Well, here's how. They were paired with sighted skiers, of course. And the blind skiers were taught on the flats how to make right and left turns. And when they was mastered, they were taken to the slalom slope where their sighted partners skied with them. And they would shout out left or right, left or right. You know what was the only thing that made that relationship work? Trust. Absolute trust. There is one thing that makes our relationship with God work. It is trust and obedience. Really, those two are the same thing. Let me ask you something. There's an area of disobedience or compromise in our lives. Can we not trace it back to a lack of trust? That God will not meet my needs unless I do it my way. He says, I will trust you in this. Third thing we do. I love this part. Wait for his provision, trust in his leading, and rejoice in his bounty. Rejoice in his bounty. And here I want to talk about verses 5 and 6. 
Do you see what this is? This is simply someone rejoicing, being overwhelmed in God's care for him. It says, you put a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And I'm not exactly sure what he means by this, but I think he means, I think he has in mind a banquet of a type where after a battle, the defeated kings or generals or leaders, as the case may be, would be at a table and they would be forced to sit there while the others were gathered around, the victors were gathered around and had a celebration. And I think that's probably what he's hinting at, is that with all the troubles in my life and with those who oppose me, still you prepare a table before me, even in their very presence. At the least, it means this, that the opposition of this world does not defeat your provision of me. I think that's what he's implying here. He says, you anoint my head with oil, as we talked about, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. That word love is a translation of the Hebrew word chesed, which means your loyalty, your mercy towards me. It says, I'm not going to lose that because I am in your house forever. You know, I think there are times when all God wants us to do is to rejoice in what he's done for us. I think there are times when God just wants us to be like David. When, remember when David came to the place he was all established there in the kingdom and he says, I want to do something great for God. And so he says for Nathan, he says, Nathan, the, the prophet, he says, I want to do something great for God. And Nathan says, yeah, go for it. God's with you. And God appears to Nathan that night and says, no, <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't ask me first because I have a different plan. He says, David, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house there's a play in words there. He means dynasty for you. And I'm going to let your son and his son be descended upon that throne of Israel. And I'm going to give you an everlasting kingdom and dynasty. And it says this, it says David went before the Lord. And I think he went into the, the temple area where the Ark of the Covenant was. And I'm sure he didn't go past the curtain there, but he went to the presence of the, of the temple. And it says he sat. And I think he sat because he was just so overwhelmed. And he you know, starts talking about what God has done. He says, is this your usual way of dealing with us? He was just overwhelmed. He was rejoicing in God's care. You know, I think we need that. I'm struck by how often in Paul's letters, he gives us this command, rejoice. Wait a second. Isn't joy an emotion? Yes, but it's also a decision, isn't it? Emotions are commanded everywhere in the scriptures. And one we're told of is to rejoice in God. We can look at the different circumstances and say, yes, this thing is wrong and this thing is wrong. But we can rejoice. Oliver Wendell Holmes was one of the greatest judges of his day. Man of sparkling wit and wisdom and intelligence. And he said this one time as he talked about his choice of career, he says, you know, I thought about becoming a clergyman, and maybe I would have if it weren't for the fact that so many of the clergy went around like they were um, undertakers instead of, <laughs> instead of those proclaiming the gospel. I think we need to tell ourselves occasionally, rejoice in the Lord. My spirit's depressed. Yes, I'm upset about something, but I'm going to choose to rejoice. Now, 
I want to be careful here. I don't want to minimize our pain. And I, I think the last thing we need is, you know, to have this attitude like, well, I just have to put on this fake smile and say, I'm just going to rejoice in the Lord no matter what. You know, someone comes up to you. How are you today? Well, my wife died and the hemorrhoids are back, but I'm rejoicing in the Lord, you know. I went bankrupt this week, but I'm rejoicing in the Lord. No, no, no. Nobody needs that. But there is a large difference between that and letting the circumstances of life determine our emotional response to life. Last week we talked about that. We basically have a choice here, don't we? We can look at God through the lens of our circumstances, or we can look at our circumstances through the lens of God. We talked about that story with Kay Arthur going in that plane, and, and one side it was dark and stormy, and the other side was bright and beautiful. And remember what God told her? It says, you can focus on either one, uh, but whichever you do, you're still going to Cleveland, right? And that's us. David is choosing to look at what God has done and say, I'm just overwhelmed with what he has given me. That, I think, is how we should respond to God's care. To wait for his provision. To trust his leading. To rejoice in his bounty.